Hello and welcome back to Toxic, the mess at Smurfit Stone. Today's episode comes directly from a Clark Fork Coalition press briefing on updates from Smurfit Stone. The goal of this virtual event was to give the press, the same press that might be asking questions of the EPA, the most up-to-date and transparent information about what's happening and what's not happening at the Smurfit Stone site. And to give us an introduction to the episode, I have with me in studio Sam Dwyer, event moderator and Clark Fork Coalition's digital content manager. Sam, what can we expect to hear in the first part of this press briefing in this episode titled, Is It Safe? So the first thing that uh, we hear is a history of the Smurfit Stone site from Andrew Gorder. And, you know, it's a really complex site. It's uh, been, you know, there on the river for, what, about 60 years, closed for about 10 years. So there's a lot going on there. He dives into that history and gives us a, a bit of a refresher. And then we hear from Karen Boyd. And Karen just finished a uh, channel migration zone study. So we get to hear her research. And, you know, we've asked, is it safe? And she talks about, you know, the berms not being super um secure, not being engineered to keep the river back, uh, you know, all the ways in which it's, nope, it's not really that safe. So she gives us the data to back that up. Excellent. Yeah, I know as a fly in the wall sitting in the meeting, it was nice to hear the refresher from Andrew and then dive into some of the nitty gritty science with, with Karen. So everyone, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. And as a quick reminder, we'll be attaching the slides mentioned in each presentation to the episode show notes. So if someone says, check out the map, obviously you can't see the map if you're listening. So we'll have those available to you. Everyone enjoy this episode. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm Sam Dwyer with Clark Fork Coalition. And we're here today with Andrew Gorder, who is Clark Fork Coalition's legal director. Elena Evans with Missoula County Water Quality District, and Karen Boyd with Applied Geomorphology. And we are recording today's event, and we will share that link with everyone afterwards for your reference or for your use. And like I said, we're using audio from today for uh, a new episode of our podcast, Toxic, The Mess at Smurfit Stone. So in order to get the best audio and video, we ask that you remain muted uh, until the Q&A at the end. We have a lot to cover in the next 75 minutes as we update you on the status of contamination and cleanup at Smurfit Stone. And we're going to ask, is it leaking? Is it safe? And is it legal? To give you some context, Andrew is going to start with a brief history of the mill site. As legal director for the Clark Fork Coalition since 2017, Andrew's developed and advanced advocacy strategies for protecting and restoring the Clark Fork watershed. He conducts water rights research and works to secure change authorizations for in-stream flows. At the state and local level, Andrew advocates for protective and progressive water laws and policies. Andrew, can you tell us how we got to where we are today with contamination and cleanup efforts at Smurfit Stone? I can, thanks Sam for the introduction. Welcome everybody, thanks for attending today. Can you all see my screen? that sharing? Yep. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, as Sam mentioned, I just want to start off uh, with a little bit of history here um, on the Smurfit Stone site and bring us up to speed um, as to where we are today. So I'm just going to give some real basic, uh, basic background and facts about the Smurfit site for those who aren't familiar. Um, it's 
been known by many different names over its history, but uh, most recently was called the Smurfit Stone site. Um, it originally opened in 1957 in the Missoula Valley. Um, it's located about 11 miles northwest of Missoula um, near Frenchtown. Um, right on the banks of the Clark Fork River, there was a reason why they chose that location as originally designed. The mill's wastewater was simply dumped directly into the Clark Fork River. Um, so just about one year after the mill opened um, and started production, there was a, a massive fish kill on the Clark Fork River that extended nearly 30 miles downstream. Um, due to public outcry after that fish kill, the mill began to construct the first of what would become many wastewater uh, holding ponds in the floodplain of the Clark Fork River, and they started doing that in, in uh, 1958. Um, the mill produced what's known as liner board. So that's the material that lines the walls of cardboard boxes. Um, and at its peak, it was producing about 2,200 tons of liner board per day. Um, as production and expansion at the mill ramped up over time, the mill had to dispose of massive amounts of industrial waste. So at its peak, the, the mill was discharging approximately 16 million gallons of wastewater per day um, and averaging about 5.7 billion gallons of wastewater per year. Um, it generated about 20 tons per year of sludge. That's uh, the bulk of, you know, that's the, the byproduct, the dry byproduct of the, the pulping process. And the bulk of that sludge was buried in unlined ponds um, on site. And, in addition to sludge, the site produced enormous amounts of additional waste. Uh, we're talking stuff like lime grits, ragger wire, asbestos, fly ash, and other waste. And those were also placed in unlined, um, unregulated repositories on site. So eventually, the, the industrial site and the waste disposal system grew uh, to a pretty massive size. We're talking 3,200 acres in total and it occupies um, four miles of the Clark Fork River waterfront. Um, the massive wastewater complex, much of which is located in the historical floodplain of the Clark Fork River, uh, it remains separated from the river by a non-engineered four mile long gravel berm um, that we know is permeable in both directions. And as we've seen in uh, recent high water years, like we had in 2018, that berm is also highly susceptible to compromise during high flows. This is a, a picture of the site uh, when it was in operation. You can see the, the waste and waste disposal and wastewater uh, complex facilities there. Um, so let's jump ahead to 2010. Um, the Smurfit Stone Corporation declared bankruptcy in 2009 and the mill closed pretty abruptly in 2010. Um, after closure, the EPA conducted some initial site investigations um, in 2011 and 2012, and they found some contaminants of concern in both site soils and groundwater. Um, some of those contaminants included dioxins and furans, arsenic, lead, manganese, and PCBs, um, just to name a few. Um, so the site was first proposed for listing under Superfund in 2013, 
And then in 2015, the repent, uh, potentially responsible parties, so that's the uh, current and, and former site owners at Smurfit, um, entered into a settlement agreement with the EPA that acknowledged that the site uh, essentially warranted listing under Superfund, and they agreed to uh, pay for and conduct a remedial investigation uh, to determine the extent of contamination and to come up with a plan to clean it up. Um, so seven years later, that remedial investigation remains ongoing. Um, and other than a few sort of minor spot cleanups out at the site, we've seen um, no action to address the most contaminated areas at the site. Um, so I think in summary, it's, it's fair to say that local governments, community members, and, and other stakeholders like the Clark Four Coalition are frustrated by both the pace um, and the adequacy of the investigation at Smurfit. There are numerous unanswered questions that remain regarding the extent of the site's impacts on the Clark Fork River and to groundwater. Uh, for example, we know that thanks to data collected by Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, um, largely of their own volition, that the fish in the Clark Fork River cannot be consumed. Um, they're contaminated with dioxins and furans, those are both byproducts of the pulp uh, and paper milling process, and both those contaminants are found um, in, in groundwater on site. Uh, but that's really all we know at this point. Um, and the EPA appears either unable or unwilling to investigate um, that connection any further. So what do we wanna see? Like all stakeholders, the Clark Fork Coalition wants to see the site cleaned up so the property can return to uh, beneficial use. Um, it's a productive, it was a productive site uh, for the county, particularly for the community of Frenchtown, which relies on property taxes um, generated by that site to, to fund things like area schools. Um, but we can't see that, re, um, that the site be returned to productive use until we clean up the site and make sure it's, uh, it's safe for both human health and the environment. So in our view, what does that mean? We wanna see the dumps and the landfills on site removed. We wanna see the berm removed and we wanna see the floodplain restored and reconnected. Um, so in the meantime, each year, you know, during early spring and summer, as many of you have probably seen, um, as we see runoff and peak flows on the Clark Fork River, nature sort of gives us a reminder of the ongoing issues uh, with ground and surface water contamination and the vulnerability of that burn. So both um, Karen and Elena today are gonna uh, help us explore both those topics in, in more detail. And then towards the end, I'll jump back in to discuss sort of the legal framework um, that should guide, uh, we believe should guide the decisions and clean up about future use at the Smurfit site. Um, so with that, that's the history in a nutshell, and I'll turn it back to you, Sam, to, to introduce our next speakers. Thank you, Andrew. With that history in mind, we'd like to turn to Karen Boyd, who recently completed a study of the river's channel migration zone at the Smurfit site. Karen is the owner of Applied Geomorphology out of Bozeman. In her 34-year career, she's focused on the evaluation of physical river processes in support of effective stream corridor restoration and management. 
Karen, what new information can you tell us about the Smurfit site and uh, the berm along the river? Is it safe? So, good morning, everyone. Can you see my screen? Yes. Okay, terrific. Um, yeah, it's, is it safe? And I think that's a, a worthy discussion. What I'm gonna talk about today will hopefully help us think about that and some of the parameters that we need to consider when we think about the safety of the berm. So as, as Andrew described, this berm is, uh, follows the river for about four miles. We're south of Frenchtown, as you know, and it confines the river against the South Valley Wall, which is made up of dolomites. It's a non-erodible, so it really pinches, pinches the river corridor down. So what I'm gonna to describe today really stems from this, this report, um, which we finished about a year ago for the City County Health Department, Missoula. And what we did was we did channel migration zone mapping for all of Missoula County, and then also for part of the, uh, it, for the Clark Fork River, and then also the Bitterroot River as well. And what that means is we essentially get historic air photos. We even some go back to the general land office surveys for more context, and we look at historically where the river was, rates of movement, and we try to identify a natural corridor that the river would be expected to occupy over a hundred year time frame, because we see that as an ecologically viable corridor determination. So um, we wrote up each reach in the report and I'm just gonna summarize what we ended up writing for the Smurfit reach because what it really drilled down to was the integrity of this berm and the separation of the, of the site from the river. So um, as Andrew mentioned, there's, there's over 900 acres of ponds the entire site has about four miles of river frontage, so pretty substantial. And a lot of these ponds, they encroach not only into the floodplain, but into the historically active river corridor of the Clark Fork. And when we mapped it, currently about 460 acres of the natural channel migration zone of the Clark Fork River are restricted by berms at, uh, at Smurfit Stone. And if you, can you see my cursor here? Okay, good. So you see the berm here. So as Andrew mentioned, it's built with native alluvium. It's eight to 15 feet high, has a top width of about 15 to 25 feet. And this has been modeled to provide a hundred year flood protection to the site with a little bit of freeboard on that. And that's something that will be, um, I'll talk a little bit about some challenges with some other things we might take into account rather than typical flooding. So the migration risks into the ponds stem really from two things. One is the river just eating away at it slowly, surface erosion of that berm and the river getting in. And the other is berm failure from more um, seepage and geotechnical failure that um, is not an uncommon thing on, uh, on river berms. So when we start thinking about erosion, is it at risk of failure due to erosion? And really the best way to look at this that I found was how challenging has it been historically to keep this berm intact? To what extent has it been threatened by river erosion after, since the, um, since the uh, facility was constructed? So here's our approximate CMZ boundary. It is approximate. I had to pull it off of our uh, more um, oblique map, put it on an oblique photo for more of a plan form map. But you can see that there are historic channels out in this area that were active in the 50s 
that um, currently are isolated. And then there's other small channels that create activation potentials, et cetera. So if you're interested in that, you, the protocols, you can uh, read it in the report, which I think we're gonna provide you the link to in terms of how we actually define that line. But what you start seeing is the river is so confined that not only do you get high velocities against the berm, the river's against it all the time in a bunch of places. It has less opportunity to move away from it. So you've got a high duration of high velocity flow in several places along the berm. The other thing that you see is that the berm isn't continuous. It's got all these little, little protuberances that kind of stick out into the corridor. So there's certain places that take more heat than others and may indeed be more vul vulnerable to, um, to erosion. This is a permit application from 1978. And you can see that there have been 10 maintenance permits put in since the mid 70s to, the, um, to 2007. I couldn't get much after that, but these, these uh, applications for, were for constructing bank armor, repairing armor, repairing breaches and treating seepage. And this one in particular, you can see one permit, it's got four sites and it's got over 3000 feet of pr proposed bank armor. One of the biggest challenges is this is the upstream end at Pond 2. The river is flowing from right to left here, northward. Um, and you can see Pond 2 is the very upper end of the, of the corridor restriction of the Clark Fork River. So this place becomes a bit of a challenge because you can see that we're really funneling the river down to this narrow corridor between the bedrock and the berm. And so that's always, and you know, you think of bridge approaches and things like that, and those areas can be especially tricky because you're trying to funnel a wide corridor into a narrow, a narrow funnel. And these are the kind of things we were looking at. So since 2017, upstream, again, we're looking downstream in this direction. So on the upper end of the property, we've had about 70 feet of movement towards the berm, mostly during the 2018 event. This channel right here was actually active in the 70s, but it's been pretty benign ever since. And the point I wanted to make is that this is going to become increasingly active as this channel continues. It's developing a bendway that's migrating in that direction. So we're going to have more flows of higher duration against this upper end of the berm, which we haven't had for a while. So it's going to be important to pay attention to what the river's doing in terms of changing pressure against the berm. These are repairs that have happened. Uh, you can see from 1976 to 2001. Here's a photo of 1990. This is right at that pinch point where armor failed, came back in 91 and built some barbs. These are little rock jetties that kind of stick out. And here you can see them on the lower right. And you can just imagine the river right now is just coming in and T-boning those barbs, which generally aren't, aren't designed to be hit at a 90 degree, degree angle. They're designed to be hit at a much lower angle which is where the river was at when the berms were built. So the changing orientation of the river to these structures can really affect their integrity. When we come down to pond 11, about halfway down, here's a place where we have the berm, you can see the road and there's armor that's actually, there's a little bit of floodplain between the, the armor and the berm itself. And this is looking downstream and we're starting to see some armor get flanked. We're starting to see erosion on the backside. So, this was originally built in 1976, and then it was extended in 1978. And it's one of these areas where there's little room for the channel to move. And so it's very frequently up against this armor, and we're starting to see the upper end of it 
um, decay. And once we see flanking armor, I mean, we see it all the time on rivers, riprap sitting in the middle of the river, you can have some rapid erosion, some crazy, you know, hydraulic effects, and you can really see dramatic changes. So again, another thing to, to watch for, here it is at high water, the river's coming down and here's that riprap out in the channel, here's the berm, and you're seeing a lot of flow going right behind that bank armor. So there's relic things out there that we just really need to pay attention to in terms of determining this, the uh, integrity of the berm with respect to the river. When we come down to the bottom end, this pond 13A, here's one that really juts out. You can see that it's running at a really high angle to the river. And this was identified by the EPA as an area of special concern after 2018, after the flood. And you can see why water basically comes in and hits that at, a, at an extremely high angle. And this is where they actually, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. They had boils form on the backside of the berm. A couple things that are important here. This is an outfall right here, this little white thing where, you, where water is discharged. There's another outfall up here I'm going to talk about. And these swales that are full of water, this one in particular, was an active river channel in the 1950s. And so the outfall is right at the lower end of it. And we have a berm at a high angle and we have an area of special concern that required a lot of maintenance after 2018. So the outfalls um, have, been have been identified as problems with embankment stability. And this is from Peter Nielsen from Missoula County that, that talked about um, an embankment failure at that outfall number three, that's the one that's right here. In, in 97, and it controlled what they called an uncontrolled head cut. So water was eroding backward into the site. And basically the point he wanted to make at the bottom is that the record shows ample evidence of erosion compromising the stability without overtopping. Overtopping isn't necessarily the, the only driver for these to fail. And when I started looking at it, I was like, wow, well, this is pretty interesting. How do these relate to these old channels? And so the Again, this is downstream as upstream to downstream is right to left. A recent air photo with a green is the 1955 channel courses. And you can see outfall number one at the bottom end of a channel and outfall number three at the bottom end of the channel. This is where they repaired the boils in the area of special concern. And the, the yellow and black line is the, is the Clark Fork main berm. And then this is a secondary berm on the back. They called the inner berm. But at any rate, um, the flooding revealed these areas of concern, two of them that were associated with the outflow points. This one had surface cracks um, on, the, on the berm, and this is where it had boils that they went in and repaired. So it's, you start thinking about it geotechnically, and, and there are old channels that go under the berm, and I'm sure this is not the only one, but it definitely stri is striking in terms of we've got an alluvial burn on top of all this different alluvium with all these very different geotechnical characteristics. So here you can see again, outfall one, outfall three with these old channels coming behind. And again, this is where, where we had boils. The reason I got really interested in this is because I worked years ago on the Feather and Yuba rivers in California, and they found the same thing. They actually found that where they had old channels underneath these levees, Here's an example where here's a levee. This is from the Feather River. They had uh, silts, you know, fine grained material, but they had an old channel. They had sands and gravels and they were getting under seepage. And they actually had 
on, they had enough pressure coming underneath that they started getting boils on the backside of the berm and they lost a berm and it was a terrible mess in California. And since then they've set the levee back and what they're doing is they're actually putting in giant concrete cutoff slurry walls to put essentially a groundwater dam under the levee. I don't know that that's appropriate here, but it's something that has been done in other places because of those types of problems. So monitoring wise, uh, Newfields, they had a visual, they have a visual berm surveillance plan for high water events, which basically means at high water, they go out either weekly or daily. They depend, and then they might go out, um, they go depending upon the stage of the river. And then they do monthly inspections in the spring through midsummer from April to mid-July. But every time I think about this, we think about ice dynamics. Um, Montana has over 4,500 ice jams reported. We're the most of any state in the country. And since 1894, we've got, we've got eight on the Clark Fork. Uh, the Blackfoot, as you know, has had some major ice jams. On the Glendive Levee, the Corps of Engineers did a study that looked at ice jamming and how it affected flooding. And they found that, you know, this prediction of water levels can go way up um, and increase the risk of overtopping beyond a typical FEMA-driven model. So ice is something to think about. Deferred maintenance, you know, we just see this, these uh, structures, the protection, it's four miles of a lot of bank armor that's going to have to be maintained. Plan for and dynamics need to be taken into an account because those areas of high pressure shift with time. And then this whole notion of that floodplain isn't a homogenous uh, geologic unit. It's going to have all these various channels and things going through it, which is going to create a, a dynamic interaction between the river and the floodplain with groundwater. And the last slide I have, because this is kind of my world, is you know, what we're trying to do now everywhere, it's in the state water plan, is we're trying to get natural storage, we're trying to reconnect floodplains, and there's a tremendous opportunity out here. I know there's, there's great challenges with water quality and a lot of work to be done, but just from a geomorphic perspective, in the event that this outer berm, the black and yellow one, were removed, we'd reconnect almost, uh, well, about 359 acres of floodplain, which is the yellow here, and then additionally, about another 160 acres of floodplain that is beyond what we mapped as prone to river erosion, but uh, still hydrologically um, connected to the river on the river side of that inner berm. So um, huge potential. With that, I am going to pass this back and, um, and hand it back to Sam. Thank you, Karen. This is really useful information. And we will link to the relevant section of the channel migration zone study in the follow-up email that we send out to everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of Toxic, the mess at Smurfit Stone. If you'd like to get involved holding the potentially responsible parties, well, responsible, reach out to us here at info at clarkfork.org. You can also visit the Clark Fork Coalition website at clarkfork.org. This has been a podcast from the Clark Fork Coalition produced by Pintler Group Digital Marketing right here in Missoula, Montana. Thanks again for listening.